Hello, I'm Seb Coe. Welcome back to my podcast series, Extraordinary Tales and Extraordinary Times, where I chat to a few friends who also happen to have shaped their world through sport, harnessed and used this passion to become game changers in the world of sport. My guest today is the embodiment of that and much more. She really is, as you will soon recognise over the course of this conversation, a real force of nature. She is the first Saudi woman to conquer Mount Everest. I don't really care about being the first so long as it inspires someone else to be second, she observes soon after her Killian climb. Pushing her mental and physical strength to the very edge on every journey and in doing so, becoming a role model for women across the Middle East. I'm delighted to be joined by Raha Moharak this morning. Hello, Raha. thank you for the awesome intro. I'm honored. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, you know, we only ever reach perfection on our CVs, but I thought I'd give it as good a go as I possibly could. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> Raha, let's, let's start in a slightly odd order here. Let's start over okay. dinner, because actually the last time you and I met was over dinner. It uh, was. <laughs> in your part of the world. And I had great pleasure uh, in finding out a lot more about you a couple of years ago. Uh, the conversation was, well, it was festooned with fascinating insights. And I remember you telling me something that's always stuck in my mind. And I'm going to quote you. Convincing <laughs> my family to let me climb was a greater challenge as the mountain itself. But actually, I also understand getting them to allow you to ride a bike wasn't a walk in the park either. <laughs> Honestly, all of it. I mean, my poor parents, I put them through the ringer. Um, I wanted to do everything my brother did as a child. I wanted to play sports. I wanted to play football with him. I wanted to horseback ride and swim. I wanted to be um, like him more than my sister. So from the very beginning of you know <laughs> this beautiful relationship with my parents, I really pushed them. I always wanted to, to be my own human. Even when I was a, a, a child, I didn't even know what, what the definition of being unique was. I wanted to be me. And that entailed wanting to wear pants all the time, refusing to brush my hair, even though it looked like Medusa, um, fighting to, to be with the boys. And uh, I think that that translated and grew into a, uh, an adult that continued to push my family till one day I decided to climb a teeny-wee little mountain in the Himalayas that uh, kind of changed everything. <laughs> but that, that's interesting because all that must have also flown in the face of the social acceptance of what a girl from Saudi would be and grow up to become. <laughs> I don't think they imagined I would be this different. I mean, my parents always say we knew you were, but... I think I really pushed it. I think I really pushed it when I decided to go off on my own and be an adventurer because that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be an astronaut, a fighter pilot, a veterinarian at some point, but the core drive in me has always been an adventurer. And then I fell in love with mountains and it, I, I really, till this day, I think my parents still are shocked at how much I've pushed the boundaries. It's so far outside what they expected me Everybody wanted me. During the time when I was beginning my mountaineering career was the prime age. Well, there isn't a specific age, but there is a specific cultural expectation for you to follow. But I decided to climb during that time. Everybody wanted me to get married and settle down. Everyone kept saying marriage, marriage. And I said mountains. So you can imagine the shock my poor family had during that, that era in my life. 
But but you, I remember you also telling me that you used to go on to Google search for adventures. Yes, I used to search for like early life crisis. What do you do if you want to be who you are or uh, things that would drive your parents crazy or trips the most dangerous. And how old were you when you were doing this? Um, I think I've always searched even before uh, the, the widespread of internet. We had an encyclopedia wall. And I every every once in a while I'd pick a letter and then I'd just engross myself in that letter and, and and travel the world with my thoughts. Even before I could search as an adult, as a child, I was always like sitting down with books that I could I could barely pick up and read about the Amazon and read about like all of these adventures. So I've, I've always been actively searching, but when did I really have the courage to go after my my passions was when I was around 25, 26. Again, that, that critical age um, where you are, uh, you should be suitor hunting. <laughs> I decided to just uh, <laughs> completely go off. But, but it, it strikes me that you've always been a restlessly curious soul. And always. from the earliest age, you've seen the world just in a different way. Always. My father would literally look at me as a, as a kid. He always says this till now. He's like, you could barely speak. You could barely put sentences and one of the very first sentences you ever told me as a child was, Dad, you know I'm a very strange person. As he's like, you could barely say sentences. And that's what you told me. You decided to declare yourself as a strange person as a child. So yeah, I think I was always different. And I, I, the, the older I got, the more emboldened I got, the more um, expressive I became and who I wanted to be. Uh, and what was the cycling? We'll get on to the mountaineering. I mean, I don't, I'm, I'm not going to dismiss <laughs> so I, that. What, what, t tell me about the cycling, because that in itself was an interesting My, my siblings, uh, we had a beach house. So both my brother and sister learned bike, uh, uh, bicycles, but I never learned how to ride a bike. And then one day I decided at 29, uh, after I had summited Everest, I decided to get up and go and do a marathon prior to not knowing how to ride a bicycle. So literally at 29, I, I had summited Everest and then at 29 decided to teach myself. And I had my best friend who was Spanish and she, it was so hot when I was learning, we would go around and around in the underground parking lot in my apartment in Dubai. Like she would hold, like two 29 year old, like, Grown women, <laughs> and like I'd be like holding on to Maria, and I'm like, don't let go. Just did you have stabilizers? No, because I had her bike. I didn't even have mine. And then I I went off and I did a 500 mile marathon. Uh, and the, mar the the reason for the marathon was uh, women's rights in sports. So I got over it and I learned how to ride the bike and I did the marathon, which was one of the craziest things I've ever done. The first day took me 12 hours. So, so let, let me get this in order. This is quite interesting. So you actually climbed Everest before you learned to ride a bicycle. Pretty bike without, without <laughs> training wheels, yes, because I had the teeny one with training wheels. But pretty I, much, think, I think most people much. might assume it would have come in the other order, but <laughs> hey. My dad says you never do anything in the right order. Never. You always want to change. <laughs> uh, okay, so let, let's just take this back a notch. Okay. So you are... A girl born in the desert. Yes. And then you become obsessed. I mean, literally obsessed with conquering one of the world's great physical and mental challenges, Everest. Yeah. Um, was this love at first sight? I mean, did you just sort of, did you Google Everest and find out what it was? <laughs> no. <laughs> it was love at first sight, but it, the way I 
came about this idea of Everest was, it, I know this might sound corny, but the mountain called me. I, I had just done that my first mountain, which was Kilimanjaro, and that was a whole different drama with my family to first of all climb Kilimanjaro. So I finally got the, the, the approval to do that. Fell in love with mountains, got invited to do a base camp hike, which was the first 10 Saudi women to do base camp. And it was under the patronage of Princess Rima bin Bandar, who I adore, uh, in the name of uh, 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 women's best crisis awareness in Saudi Arabia. So I was going for this as a one-time thing. But during that hike, on one of the, one of the elbows, because when you go up the Himalayas, you literally go around and around uh, smaller mountains, and then you cross them, and you go to bigger ones. On one of those elbows, I took the turn and I saw Everest right before we got to base camp and I saw Everest for the first time with my own eyes and I was in love. My mom always jokes, she says, Raha, inshallah, one day you look at a man, same way, you look at that mountain. <laughs> and she was right in a way, like she makes me laugh, but she was 100% right because I fell in love with the idea of me climbing that mountain. So it called me. I don't know how to explain it, it's so corny, but the, that mountain called me. You can tell your mum that mountains tend to be a little more predictable than men, but that's for another... <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what I will say as well. That's, that's maybe for another day, Rana. So, but you got to base camp, you, you see this extraordinary vision. And feeling, the feeling. But you, but you don't just go from base camp to climbing it, you then have no. to start tackling other... I mean, you basically pretty much conquered the highest mountain in, in most of, of the world's regions. Tell me a little bit so about before, that. Before that, so I did, I did Kilimanjaro, kind of broke the wall with my family about adventure, right? Like, Kilim, I, the, the first time I told my father I wanted to climb Kilimanjaro, he literally thought I was insane. Because imagine this pitch. Hi, Dad, how are you? Saudi father. Saudi daughter, during the time when they're telling her to get married, I'm like, I want to climb the highest peak in Africa. And he said, come again? I said, I wanted to climb the highest peak in Africa. He's like, what do you mean? I said, oh, you go to Tanzania and you live in a tent for eight days. And I went on and he literally thought I had lost my mind. But I won him over eventually. And I did Kili and I fell in love with the feeling of mountaineering. Came back, did Everest Base Camp. And that's when the idea of doing the seven summits was born. Because when I came back and I researched how to climb Everest, there were lots of training programs that covered many of the seven summits. So in my mind, I said, hang on, since I need to train to do Everest, I need the seven summits, some of the seven summits, because they're the most commonly you know, climbed. Why not do the seven summits? And that's when the idea came. And truly enough, I, I emailed this company in the US. I'm like, hi, my name is Raha. I live in Saudi Arabia. I'd like to climb Everest next year. And the response, <laughs> I can imagine the guy was like, she's got to be kidding. Like, he didn't say that. He was very professional. But he came back with it. I'm guessing the response was up there with your father's first response yeah, about Kilimanjaro. Much, yeah, I'm sure. Imagine, like, this was before there were, we have amazing prominent climbers now, but this, is in, this was before all of the, the cultural revolution, the evolution we're living right now, right? This is like six, seven years ago. I just celebrated an anniversary, my Everest anniversary. So you have to imagine this is way before all of this now. And I emailed them and they came back to me with a long list of, of mountains. And they told me, if you really want to climb this mountain, here are the prerequisites, one, two, three. And they gave me around eight suggested mountains. And I did, I think, six of them. 
And I went off and I, I put every single penny I had saved up to that point uh, to climbing, to gear, the tickets, the, and I was, finding, I was trying to find locations that were, that were close to each other and affordable. So for example, if I go to the US to do training, I'd go to Mexico and do another mountain because I, I was paying it for, my, for myself up to that point. Um, and truly enough, I did, in, in 12 months, I did around six to eight mountains and training. And the company accepted me. <laughs> the company was like, this, this crazy girl from Saudi Arabia really wants to, to, to climb Everest. And then another, another, people don't realize the small fights, the small battles you have to win. I needed a summit suit for Everest, right? Can you imagine shopping for a summit suit in the Middle East, like six years ago? <laughs> Like, can you imagine? So I couldn't find a summit suit. Uh, the, company, the, the big companies that did summit suits that didn't send to the Middle East at the time. So I find this one tiny little company in Seattle. I begged them to, because to, you had to tailor make it. If you're not a typical size, and I'm not, because I'm a little bit tall and lanky, and it needed to be enough to insulate you, but not too much that you get cold. So I had to have it made. And I emailed this company and they say, I'm from Saudi Arabia, I want to climb Everest. I need a suit. And they, in the beginning, they flat out said, we're not sending you our suit. I'm like, no, please, I really need the suit to climb Everest. I'm not kidding. <laughs> so eventually, they accepted it. And it's actually the iconic picture in my blue suit. Because I wanted the blue one, me being stubborn. I wanted the blue one. I didn't want a red or yellow. I wanted the blue suit. <laughs> with- I, 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 I'm, sure, I'm sure with the number of girls that you've inspired now to become mountaineers, there's probably a domestic market for <laughs> these suits. suits. Yeah. But I got it in the end. And it's just, I like to say the small details because it, it wasn't just, I decided to climb and I went. No, I went to Antarctica. I had to do some ice uh, crevasse rescue and ice training yeah. in Antarctica. I, did to, I went to Aconcagua to get some altitude training because it's a very high mountain. Uh, I, I put all my time and my emotion and my savings into this because I believed that I could stand on top of the world. And it was insane to believe that, but I did. Let me just tackle something else for a moment because I'm really interested in this. Um, I, I often get asked, I was an old pavement pounder many, many years ago, and I often get asked by young athletes, you know, what what... What do you have to do to become focused and, and great at a particular discipline, you know, marathon, 10,000 meters or sprinting? And I say the first thing you really need to do is to get into the heads of people that have achieved before you. Uh, you know, understand if you want to be a great 100 meter runner, read about Carl Lewis or Jesse Owens. Did you get into the heads of those mountaineers that had done it in the past? You know, the great ones like Edmund Hillary, uh, George Mallory, Reinhold Messner. Did, did you sort of absorb their world before you got up onto the mountainside? I tried to research as much as I can about them, but there wasn't really a playbook for a Middle Eastern climber. Because to, before getting to that mountain, like you, you, there was a lot. And then we had very few uh, Arab climbers at the time. And I did reach out to the first uh, Egyptian to, uh, to climb Everest, who is a very dear friend of mine. And I actually climbed Kilimanjaro with his company. And he's been a great support and inspiration for me. And I also met the first Jordanian. Uh, so I, I kind of developed this, this small group of um, uh, idols that I, 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 I could actually speak to. But my biggest problem, besides the training, was getting there. Like, it, it, it was my, my parents at the beginning, when I, when I finally told them that I wanted to climb Everest, really didn't know what to say because they knew if they said no, 
like the first mountain I was gonna go. Anyway, so the, my, my parents took a moment to be like, how are we going to deal with this? And then they decided to join me in my madness. And that's something I admire about them. They decided, they took a conscious decision not to fight it. And that made us very strong and very close. And I think a lot of families, m most families generally, but specifically in the Middle East, tend to fight what they don't know. They tend to fight what isn't the common lifestyle. So I think I owe, I do not think I know, I owe a lot to my parents' acceptance in who I am because they were really terrified, yet they accepted being my supporters. I, I, I'm interested in this because, of course, you've just referred to it as a madness, and I think anybody that achieves at the <laughs> highest level, there's, there's a streak of, of madness about them. What is it in the process of putting together these mountains? Because I understand, actually, Everest was tough, but the toughest mountain you climbed was actually in Alaska. What is it that you learnt about yourself during that period? I think mountain, people who climb mountaineers love mountaineering so much because they discover so much about themselves that they never imagined possible. They in uncover things that only come out when you're pushed. And I think that's one of the things that drove me. I discovered that I'm much more stronger than I thought I was. I discovered that my parents' love does no, no bounds. <laughs> I discovered that uh, there are some relatives that aren't bound to me by blood. I have friends that have been there for me. And I've discovered that every single thing in life, no matter how big or small, starts with one step. I climbed Everest starting with one step. And one of the biggest challenges in life is finding the courage to take that first step. We really tend to be our own worst enemies. We tend to be like, no, but what do people say? And what if I fail? And what if I don't fail? What will happen if, if I do succeed? We, we put these barriers to ourselves even before others do it. So I've learned that. But I think the biggest lesson is um, that there's no shame in failing. I was completely content in going up those mountains and then coming back down and not, not finishing them. I was just happy that I could achieve something that was mine. So I accepted the fact that failure is a huge lesson and a rite of passage. So really, like, I don't think, I think people who live uh, ultra safe and uh, mundane lives uh, tend to not see the potential they can achieve for themselves. Because that doesn't come out until you have something that, that fire in you. Do you know what I mean? I, I know exactly what you mean, but this is interesting because you've referred to, you know, not wanting to take an ultra safe, ultra, um, uh, yes, just an ultra safe path in life. But there's quite a difference between an ultra safe path in life and choosing something <laughs> that could quite, quite easily claim that life. I guess that's another demon that you have to overcome. But it's calculated risk, if you think about it. I mean, um, yeah. Everything in life is calculated risk when you think about that detail. But mountaineering, first of all, like everything in life, there are different categories. So you need to put the time in to train. You need to do the research to find the right companies. You need to put the time in for yourself to train your mental capacity. You need to find the right... Um, What's the word in English? The right avenues to find the, the, the good guides, the good companies, the good gear. There are no shortcuts. Like everything in life, there's no shortcuts. So it's, I, a lot of people don't see it, but I think of it as calculated risk. I didn't just go on the mountain with any company and say that, hey, I just wanted to climb Everest. And the reason why Everest is a grave, the highest graveyard in the world 
is a testament to that. Uh, things can go wrong really quickly, really badly. Regardless of the preparations, you might as well do the right preparations. Was there any moment that you just thought, mm, this is just too hard, that I may just not make it, not, not on Everest itself, but in, in the lead up to that? I was very lucky that my Everest year was uh, a very good year. We had a few skirmishes between some of the top climbers and the Sherpa. There was a few really uh, uncomfortable and very awkward and unfortunate uh, brawls between, it's, it's just, I think I, I, I chalk it to uh, miscommunication between languages, but that year was excellent. We had very few cases uh, of accidents and relatively few deaths. So I was lucky on Everest. Denali was a different case. I think I got all the luck I had on Everest dried out. Uh, and Denali was Alaska. Denali was Alaska. And it was my seventh summit. So it was my, my I, call, I call Denali my demon. So it was my own demon I had to face. Um, the first time I attempted Denali, uh, I, I was in uh, Ecuador. I was training in Ecuador, uh, altitude training. I had finished training and I was getting ready to leave back to the UAE to change gears and then go to Alaska. A week before I was about to go to Alaska, I get a phone call from the, from the climbing company saying, uh, your guide, who was just with me in, in Antarctica, had passed away in a climbing accident. So my, the guide, Matthew Higgeman, uh, uh, God rest his soul, he's assistant guide and six clients died. So I was put in this position where my guide had passed away and I was going to do the same thing he died doing. But because I had already paid for the trip and I had already had the visa and everything ready, I went anyway against my gut. And that was a very bad choice. I was given to another company last minute with a very weak team. Long story short, the weather was horrible. The team was weak. We got marooned at 14,000 feet for eight days waiting out the storm. During that time, I lost all my toenails uh, from Tobang, but they came back. My mom always says, tell people it comes back, they'll think you have ugly feet. My toenails came back. <laughs> she always says that. My toenails came back, but I lost them because of Tobang. Um, I got uh, a stress eczema everywhere. I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep for like eight days. That was one of the most close to breaking moments of my life. Because you're sitting there in a tent, 24 hours sun, with two other people who haven't showered for God knows how long. I mean, I was thinking too, I'll be fair, I wasn't the most you know, nice smelling person, but they also smelled as well. And they were boys, and no offense to boys, but your feet are terrible when they smell. But we all smelled bad, and I'm sitting in that tent. Thank you for introducing that concept to this podcast. Sorry. I'm sure that's probably Sorry. the subject of the next one. That's the truth, but I mean, I was thinking too. I'm not, I'm unfair, I was thinking too. But imagine the mindset, you're sitting in that tent, tiny tent, eight days, and you didn't know it was eight days. Every day might be the last or just another day. Imagine the mental psyche. And then once we finally got the call that there wasn't gonna be a summit at tent because the snow was too dangerous because there were avalanches everywhere, I had to give up the summit and walk down for 20 hours. I mean, that was, I beat myself up, I think, for 19 of those 20 hours saying, why did you come here? You know, you, it's your fault. And it nearly broke me, that mountain nearly broke me. And I came back down, sorry, it's a long story, but I came back down from Denali, took off my boots, threw them, and said I never wanted to climb again. 
And uh, I love this about the story because my parents had the foresight of keeping my boots. So I think my, my mom and my dad kept my boots. And then me being me, I couldn't let it go. I couldn't let go of the fact that there was a mountain that I couldn't climb up. I mean, the mountain will always best you. We're not stronger than Mother Nature, but I really wanted the chance to climb back up. So for like a year, I asked myself the same question and I promised myself, so this is my birthday, I, I celebrate my birthday. By next birthday, if I keep asking the same question, I will go back to Denali. And the question was, what can you live with? What can you accept? Failure, complete failure, giving up, or a failed attempt? And I kept asking myself the same thing. What, in, in 50 years down the line, what is the answer that you can sleep with comfortably? And to me, it was, I'd rather have a failed attempt attempt than failing. So sure enough, uh, a year or, or two years later, no, two years, it took me two years to get over it. Two years later, I walked into my parents' place. I came to a visit and I said, you know, mom and dad, I was thinking about something. And they just looked at each other and they said, yeah, Denali, we know, we know. They just knew, they just knew. I'm like, what if I had a proposal? My mom's like, yeah, right, you want to climb the mountain again? <laughs> they knew it, they knew that I wanted to climb again. <laughs> And I love that about them, that they knew it before even I did. They knew that. It's so, it's so uplifting to hear this because I've always instinctively felt that it's the infrastructure behind individuals, the parents, friends, <laughs> families that absolutely believe implicitly in, in your that? unique type of madness. And I don't think any of us could do that without that psychological cushion uh, of just knowing them that they're, they're there. And I, and I think that doesn't just go for for sport i think it goes for creating businesses i think it's anything that has a sustainable future is so often suffused in parental support and friendship and people that are just prepared to believe in you all the time yeah even when you don't i didn't believe i could do it i didn't believe i would go back and i did and i remember i'm not much of a crier so in in my mountaineering career i cried twice once when i Everything, like my eyebrows were falling off, I had no toenails, I had eczema, that's the first time I cried. The second time I cried was when I finished the Seven Summits and I, was, I, I arrived at the summit and my teammates knew it was my seventh. So I arrived to the I was the last person, I was the anchor of the team. So imagine this, I'm, I'm about to get to my seventh summit and we were a teammates from all over the world, right? And I get to the summit and all I hear is the clang of ice axes. So they were clanging their ice axes together and saying, seven, seven. So I got to the summit. They gave me the summit because it's like a sign of respect. They gave me the summit for me to stand on. And that's when I cried for the second time in my mountaineering career because I picked up the Saudi flag. And I said, and I actually have a hilarious video. And I'm like, dad, this is for you. And I just like, started bawling. <laughs> I said, it's for my mom and my dad. I literally said, this is for everybody that thought I was crazy and still loved me anyway. So this is the actual thing I said on the sum on my seventh summit. And that and to me that is is just every human being needs to feel that. Every human being needs to feel that sense of accomplishment, the sense of empowerment. Every one of us needs that. Okay, so you come back having <laughs> done something that well, nobody in your country's done before, which is an unbelievable achievement. <laughs> Uh, and I know you didn't set off to do it to become a role model, but whether you like it or not, you have become one. You did become one for some people absolutely overnight. 
there must have been some sudden attendant pressures and a visibility that even you couldn't have seen coming? No, I had no idea. And a lot of people accused me of knowing what was going to happen. I always tell them, listen, I did Everest. Everest was the one that catapulted me, right? So I did Everest and I had I lost communication with my family. I, I arrived back to base and they kept telling me, they're looking for you. The, the people in base kept saying, they're looking for you, they're looking for you. And I said, yeah, my parents are probably looking for me. They're like, no, CNN is looking for you. And I just looked at the guy, I was like, what are you talking about? So literally, I, was, I, I had just gotten to, to, to base camp and I was about to eat the biggest burger I've seen because I was so hungry. And I shoved like fries down my throat and then they pulled me, the comm team pulls me out and says, CNN wants to talk to you. So they pulled me out and they shoved me in the comm tent and there's a video of this, which is really fun. Still chewing on, on my, my fries. And then that's when I realized, oh God, this is big. So I did the interview with CNN, lost communications again because I went back to another camp. <laughs> Got to Kathmandu, arrived, and there were cars and people taking pictures everywhere. And I was like, who, who is here? And I showed up to the gate, and they were taking pictures of me. And it was all over the news. So flash forward three, four days later when I finally got to Saudi Arabia. Because everyone was accusing me of doing it as a stunt. So I finally got to Saudi Arabia, and I kept telling people I didn't know. My, I, I got the newspaper cuttings to my mom. So I gave the newspaper cuttings to my mom. And she was looking at them and she started tearing up. So I said, mom, why are you crying? I'm right here, I'm fine, I'm safe. She's like, yeah, I know, you're fine and you're safe and I'm so proud, but you look so terrible in the pictures. You couldn't put some mascara on, you look so bad. <laughs> and, I, and I looked at her, I'm like, thank you. So you believe me that I had no idea <laughs> that this was going to happen. I had no idea. Parents have an, an unbelievable ability to, to put you firmly back on your feet. Uh, and then actually, of course, not only do you have the public interest, you then have the sponsors come knocking, companies like Tag Heuer. Yes, my beloved Tag Heuer family. So uh, the story of Tag Heuer, even, okay, before Tag Heuer uh, even considered me, I loved the brand. And I had already loved, like a lot of people think that my love for them is because of my contract with them, I guarantee you it isn't. I, the first time I saw their tagline, don't crack under pressure, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm like, don't crack under pressure. That's totally what makes people incredible, is the ability to do something despite the pressure. So before even I, I was in the radar of Tag Heuer, not many brands wanted to, to to sponsor, can you imagine like back back then when I started looking for sponsors, telling them I'm from Saudi Arabia and I'm a mountain climber, a lot of brands didn't really want to take the risk. But luckily Tag Heuer had the amazing uh, uh, forward vision and insight, and especially Anne Claire, who, who was uh, one of the main Tag Heuer people that championed for me, came up to me when I was at an event because I was going to all the events that they were in. Like that's very important, by the way, for everybody that wants to look for brand uh, association, go to the right events and speak to the right people. It's really critical. So I went up to her and I, sp I started speaking to her. I just, I, she's like, you're on all the events. I kept going to all the events like, hi guys, remember me? Hi guys. So finally I was in the radar and they took a huge chance on me. They said that, okay, we're going to work with small project with you. And then if things work out, we'll see where it goes. Flash forward now two years, 
uh, as an ambassador going into the third uh, as a friend of the brand and next year will be the fourth year. So I've been with them for all these years and it's because they took a chance on this wacky Saudi girl that wants to go on these crazy adventures and I admire brands like that. And one of the greatest moments for me is finally visiting their headquarters. So imagine me from Jeddah, you know, this girl from Jeddah walking into the Tag Heuer headquarters and there was you know, they're, they're, they're famous athletes, they're famous uh, uh, drivers, Chris Hemsworth, um, uh, Cara Delevingne, and Cristiano Ronaldo, and then there was my poster, my poster hanging there in Tagheuer, uh, the factory in the headquarters. I was like, that's pretty awesome. That's we love, awesome. we all love brave brands, and Tag Heuer were clearly they are they made the right they decision, really, but it, it was a brave decision. Very, and I think with brands, you need brand associate. If you are not a big name and has a big, if, you, if you're not an individual who has a big name and a big budget to pay PR, the only way as a, as an independent person to get recognized is brand association because you piggyback on their uh, background and their, and their views and their you know, names. So I really appreciate them uh, over the years. It's been a fantastic support. Uh, and that just goes to show, like I never imagined I'd ever be an ambassador like this. And uh, that of course opened so many doors to me as well. Uh, and, I, and I admire every single person that supported me as, uh, as well, besides the brands, uh, CSM has been an incredible support in getting me to the projects that I've always dreamt of, such as the, the Special Olympics as well. So t- that kind of like, it, it's, it's a stepping stone. All, all of them. All well, of them. well I, I, I'm, I'm just relieved that they persuaded you to join me on this podcast. So I'm... That's an honour! It's an honour! I'm <laughs> one of your very grateful clients. Uh, sadly, these conversations could go on all day uh, and sadly they can't. Let me just pull, pull the knitting together, as I often say. Um, you are originally and have close family friends and you're doing this podcast from, from, from Jeddah. Uh, you are living in a country that is in a very interesting transformational period. Uh, you have the Vision uh, 2030, which is, you know, a framework really for trying to diversify uh, and reduce the reliance in the in the royal kingdom of of oil, uh, and it's a manifestation uh, and 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 manifesto really of public services, health, education, bringing all that together. Uh, where where does the balance for you lie? Because I I also remember you saying to me, uh, and it was a really a line I've often used before. Don't just simply demand. Uh, you know, don't sit there waiting for equality. Demand it. Yeah. So where's the balance between the transformational working with the grain and the balance that you also need to strike about not lying down and continuing to promote the role of women in society? It's a very fine line and this line is defined differently for different individuals. So what I can see as uh, a line that should be crossed might not be something that others accept. So we should always be careful which lines to blur and which lines to cross. Because we do live in a culture society that's very old and very well rooted in in culture, right? Uh, But to me, I truly believe that sports is a human right for everybody. And I'm so happy to see the change that's been going on the last couple of years 
they really, really redefined sports in general and sports for women. Uh, the fact that I've been invited to attend and to, 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 to be more outspoken is a huge sign of the evolution of the mentality when it comes to this. Uh, I, I hosted a, a travel show, an adventure travel show around Saudi Arabia last year as a woman. And in that show, I was, I was scuba diving, I was horseback riding, I was rock climbing, and I was, this, I was the expert. And it was well received, and it was all across Saudi Arabia and the Middle East, and it was, it was not a shock. So I think that, uh, to me, the line sports is, is, is a no-brainer. It must be implemented, it must be grown, because um, sports is one of those things that teaches you so much, and it, and it, it, it enriches the culture in a way uh, that that goes across the board. It gives you a healthier mindset, a healthier body. It keeps kids out of trouble. It keep, it gives people longer life, healthier lives, and that, of course, if you want to look at it in the bigger picture, reduces the problems, health problems, reduces the crime, reduces uh, uh, mental issues. It is, studies say this that sports is one of the most critical things. It builds leaders. It builds a stronger individual. So to me, I will always champion for sports, always. And I'll never apologize for my passion to want to be a champion for sports. Don't ever apologize for championing sport. It is the <laughs> real social worker in all our communities. And, and you've proven that. If I had your parents at this moment on this podcast and I said to them, OK, so what do you think the next challenge for your daughter is? They'd probably put their head in their hands <laughs> and think of something crazy. What are the challenges left? Because you're, I don't get sense that you're ready to sit down and, and settle for the quiet life. So my parents know, and it's well documented, that there are two challenges in my life. I'll tell you the easier one. I've always wanted to go to space. I've always wanted oh my to goodness. go to space. Okay. That's the easier one. I've always wanted to find a way to go to space. And I actually applied to a, 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 a space program, a space selection program, and I made top six and I think if I had a science degree, I would have continued, but because I didn't have the science degree, but I made it that far, right, as a civilian. Um, so that's, the, that's the, the, the big dream. But the more complicated one, if you ask my mom, would be to find someone that I can go on my adventures with. <laughs> she always says that, you know, she climbed Everest, she's gonna have a hard time <laughs> finding someone to follow her. But I truly believe, um, Things happen in the right time. Um, I have so much to do. I, I don't, I, I'm really passionate about changing the mentality uh, about uh, women in general, but specifically about Arab women in the region, and hopefully lead by example and just prove that your dreams can be as big and grand as that you can imagine. It doesn't matter where you're from, where you're born. I mean, I was born in Jeddah, in the desert. Yet I managed to stand on top of the highest mountain in each continent. The seven continents. My dad always says, it wasn't enough she climbed Everest. No, she climbed all seven to prove you can do whatever you want. But my dad really, this man has come a long way. But yes, like my dreams is just to have a, a, a legacy that I can, my kids one day, my future kids one day can be proud of, to make my country proud. Uh, and, and, and hopefully one day when I'm old and gray and, and you know, there's a, there'd be like a documentary miniseries about, you know, the, the crazy Saudi woman who did these things. I'd be happy if I can change one mentality. I'd be happy. That would make me happy. 
Rana, thank you for bearing your soul for us all today. My pleasure. Thank you for taking the time uh, to be with us. And I'm sure that the challenges that lie ahead are challenges that will further secure your legacy. Thank you so much for having me. Shukran. Thank you. You've been listening to Extraordinary Tales in Extraordinary Times, brought to you by CSM 